it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, the Tuesday edition of the show. I think it'll be as good, if not better, than Monday's. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West is coming up shortly. You know him, almost 30 years in the business uh, of uh, serving in the military with Memorial Day up. A great uh, perspective there. And, of course, we'll take your calls. And keep in mind, you can write me, briankilmeade.com. And for those of you who are asking me, especially on times like this on Memorial Day, um, and since all my books really have war around them except the sports books, if you want to get one signed, especially with Father's Day, just go to BrianKillMe.com. It'll come to uh, me. I'll be able to personalize and get it out. Uh, meanwhile, the President of the United States, if you're looking for him, has left Tokyo. He is en route to Alaska. And after Alaska, he's going to refuel and then head back to Washington, D.C., where a lot of issues await. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The biggest themes that we got out of today's testimony was that there was a close hold on Sussman, which in the FBI means that they hid the source of the information. And that was highly convenient considering that Michael Sussman was retained by the DNC and Hillary Clinton for America campaign. Trump attorney Alina Haba, her Durham trial on final week. It looks like it will be the final week. It is the second week. We are watching it close to find out where the brass were fi- why the brass was fired up about the Trump Alpha Bank uh, link, which we know was just basically a marketing email. This as two agents speak out how different the probe would have been had they known that Michael Sussman was working for Hillary. Number two. When it comes to the gas prices, we're going through an incredible transition that is taking place, that God willing, when it's over, we'll be stronger and the world will be stronger and less reliant on fossil fuels when this is over. Did we just wake him up in the, in the middle of the night? Economy, gas prices are still on the rise, and guess who's happy about it? President Biden, as our embarrassing guess, uh, quest for baby formula only gets worse as we beg our allies for it, everything but the nipple. As of now, inflation remains the number one worry about Americans. How will it be affecting your uh, three-day weekend plans? We'll talk about it. Number one. I do think Governor Kemp, if he is nominated, uh, this is the highest profile race where President, former President Trump came out against the candidate. If Governor Kemp is to win tomorrow and he's uh, able to be reelected, I think you have to begin to think about him as a presidential candidate. Wow. I never thought about that. I think if Stacey Abrams beats him, she will be one for sure. Another intriguing primary Tuesday in five states. On center stage, Georgia, between the new voting laws and the power of the Trump and board endorsements, it's what everyone will be watching. We will bring you the latest. So let's get started. So what's what's the intrigue about Georgia? Number one, the election law. How's it working? Well, so far, an extra hundred, as of yesterday, already 108,000 above last year's pace. So the last election pace. So this Jim Crow 2.0, not turning out that much, including African-Americans, not turning out that way. When's, where's the apology coming from the Democrats? I know 
Perhaps they think it's too early. I have not seen people blocking like it's the 1960s or the 1880s. I've not seen them, uh, African-Americans or any minority group, being blocked from voting. In fact, it is all just the opposite. It was to rein in, get control. It wasn't to eliminate, and that's pretty clear. The other thing is, of course, in uh, in Georgia, is Herschel Walker supposed to uh, roll to a endorsement in that Senate seat? So that's because, really, Donald Trump elevated him. We've been pushing him for a while to do just that, to run. He's going to be tested, no doubt about it. He's going to be asked about abortion. He's going to be asked about uh, the mental illness that he wrote about in his autobiography. He's going to ask about what's going on with his businesses. He's going to be asked about his relationships. And he better have answers. If not, those are the types of things that can trip up a, a candidacy. As great a person as Herschel Walker is, as Doug Collins told me on One Nation over the weekend, he has not been tested yet. That's going to be key. But congratulations if indeed he does get the nomination, which by all accounts will happen. Uh, by the way, we, I just looked at this now. Black voters this time, as opposed to 2020, uh, it is three times ahead of where it was in 2020. So much for Jim Crow 2.0. Meanwhile... Um, the other big story is Secretary of State Jody Heiss against uh, Brad Raffensperger, who comes on our show a lot. The president wants Raffensperger out. He's basically suing the president, former President Donald Trump. Uh, it looks like he will hold on to that. It looks like he has got a slight lead over Jody Heiss. In Texas, the Bush dynasty on the line. As George P. Bush tries to unseat a Trump-backed Texas attorney, Ken Paxton, who's had that seat, but he's being investigated by the FBI uh, from some unsavory acts from people that work for him. Uh, Ken Paxton slammed George P. Bush in an interview with Fox Digital, saying, uh, I'm, I'm kind of in the way of the Bush dynasty plan to move the guy up to bigger and bigger, higher offices. In reality, that's he's kind of the last one they had big plans for. Uh, and I'll probably be he'll, he'll probably be governor or president of the United States. And this was just a stepping stone. I don't know. Uh, you know, if before we become vice president, you got to get the job. Uh, before you become president, you got to get the job. He was land commissioner for two terms. Uh, so Ken Paxton, it's a intramural battle there. So Mike Pence showed up to go to bat for Governor Kemp as he goes against Senator Perdue. Pence against a Trump-backed candidate, Senator Perdue. Cut seven. And I'm here because Brian Kemp is the only candidate in tomorrow's primary who has already defeated Stacey Abrams, whether she knows it or not. And I'm here because Stacey Abrams can never be governor of the great state of Georgia. And that's going to be uh, key for Republicans uh, because Stacey Abrams is, uh, they look at her as a rising star. She certainly has done a lot for election reform in her direction, which means loosening loosening the guidelines about it. So Brian Kemp beat her once, but she never acknowledged it. That's what he was referring to. But Donald Trump hates Brian Kemp. Governor Kemp will not address anything that will not say anything negative about President Trump. Cut six. Tomorrow was so critical. It's a primary. It's uh, something that we have to win. We want to win. And uh, we have a uh, a governor that's done the worst job of any governor in probably decades on election integrity. I'd like you to get out and vote. Yeah, but he knows he's, this is one that uh, President Trump couldn't handle. Kemp is very popular. One of the best things he did was not lock down the state, and people are not going to forget that. If they do lock you down, they're not going to forget it. If you have mandates that are getting you fired, like the nurses here in New York, they're not going to forget it. Like the cops here in New York almost were fired. They pulled back at the last minute, not going to forget it. 
Uh, and Kemp has done a, a pretty good job, really good job. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, we're also going to take a look at what's happening in Alabama. One of the oddest things ever is the president of the United States got behind Mo Brooks, and Mo Brooks spoke on January 6th, went over to the Capitol. But then later he said, you know, President Trump uh, lost the election. That got Trump so incensed he pulled up endorsement of Mo Brooks. So Brooks dropped in the polls, but suddenly he is surging again. Here he is, cut eight. Whoever it is, we're willing to take them on. Neither of the other opponents has a conservative record. I do. That's the difference point, and we'll define that to a better degree as this uh, runoff process unfolds. He is the best-known congressman there. He did not get the nomination last time. He's going against uh, Katie Boyd Britt, Shelby's, uh, the Senator Shelby had the seat before, uh, Senator Shelby's uh, former chief of staff, Mike Durant, uh, the owner of an aerospace company, who's also best known as the helicopter pilot shot down and captured in the events that led to Black Hawk Down. Lily Boddy and Carla DePriest and Jake Schaefer also seeking the nomination. Not supposed to have a shot. Uh, Governor Ivey is supposed to uh, try to avoid a runoff. That would be her goal. A lot of people are mad at her because she turned on President Trump. Evidently, reportedly, we'll see how that matters. In Arkansas, Sarah Sanders should have very little problem uh, there. So in Minnesota, there's a key Senate race. In Texas, I find this the second most intriguing situation. I mentioned about Paxton before, but also Henry Cuellar. Why? Henry Cuellar is a pro-life Democrat, the only one left. So now, suddenly, Roe v. Wade matters, first time since the 1970s, because it's on the precipice of being uh, overturned. Jessica Cisneros, Jessica Cisneros, who's a protege of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, to me, that's the anti-Texas philosophy. But she is running very close with the runoff in Henry Cuellar because out of nowhere, the FBI raids his house and says, you're not the subject of an investigation, really. So he's in a runoff now, backed by Clyburn, backed by Pelosi in a district that will flip red if Cuellar is not the congressman. So Cisneros, if they wins, she'll have a short-term celebration because there's no way that border community will put a Democrat, a liberal Democrat, squad Democrat, open borders Democrat in that seat. So to me, Republicans can't lose. Because Henry Cuellar is just a great guy, great politician who cares about the country first and the people of Texas first. I think it's such a bad signal if he loses his job. Because what he's doing is just trying to solve problems. Uh, the other thing is on Pennsylvania, quick update, Memonaz against Dave McCormick. They got about a th- uh, Memonaz has about a thousand uh, vote lead. And they might be heading to a recount. We're not sure. But what he's trying to do, McCormick, and I really can't believe he's doing this. He is trying to get uh, the Pennsylvania, state of Pennsylvania, to count ballots that don't have dates on them. That's exactly what Democrats do. They cause all the uproar. You have mail-in ballots without dates on them that people can't, that people mail in. If you're not, if they're not stamped, they should not be counted. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. That's it. Because you can't be mailing in ballots after Election Day, even if you say, uh, I think they were mailed before. If it's not stamped, it can't be done. So Dave McCormick, to me, uh, if he's not able to make up the gap, if the recount doesn't reveal a gap, he's just run against Casey next in two years. He's a great candidate, unbelievable background, got better every single week. I think Dr. Oz was just better, plus the Trump endorsement matters. So I'm going to take a time out. I am going to talk about the Durham report. I'm going to make everyone understand how much, how significant this is. Most of you do know how significant it is. We'll go over that. Um, 1-866-408-408. 7669. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. 
politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The biggest themes that we got out of today's testimony was that there was a close hold uh, on Sussman, which in the FBI means that they hid the source of the information. And that was highly convenient considering that Michael Sussman was retained by the DNC and Hillary Clinton for America campaign. So that is a soundbite from last night's show on Hannity Show when Alina Haba, the Trump attorney, went and started analyzing what's going on as we start week two with the Durham trial. Durham is really Michael Sussman. But in, in prosecuting Michael Sussman, they, they lied to the FBI about the fact that he went up to the FBI uh, attorney named Jim Baker, who's a friend of his, and says, I'm just here. And it, my text message reveals this is fact. I'm just here as myself, not representing a campaign. There's a big link that we're concerned about. My cyber team is picked up between Alpha Bank and the Trump team. So now all of a sudden we have a reverse narrative. Instead of talking about Hillary Clinton's emails, we're talking about this link between Trump and Russia that's not just with the FBI, that's also planted with the New York Times and Washington Post. So here now we get two uh, FBI agents who testified yesterday. Uh, One was Ryan Gaynor. Ryan Gaynor said this so-called close hold, which means don't tell anyone who you talk to. Just say that sort. Don't say Michael Sussman's name because it has nothing to do with this case. It's just a concerned citizen. He says the fact that he did not know Sussman's origin, background, the fact he was billing Hillary Clinton for doing this. He says it prevented him from sharing Sussman's identity with a Chicago-based agent who would lead the investigation. And then went on to testify, had they been aware that Sussman's potential motivations— that he worked for Hillary Clinton, for lodging the allegations, he wouldn't have devoted any attention to the case. Sussman's defense also spent considerable effort raising questions about Gaynor's credibility because in the beginning he did not want to get involved with this, and he went on. There's another agent. This juror has also heard from FBI agent Allison Sp- uh, uh, Sands, which, uh, who prepared a memo formally opening up a counterintelligence investigation into the Alpha Bank server and claims the day after Sussman brought them to Baker. Under questioning by the prosecution, Sands says, not knowing who the information came from or whether political partisans produced it may also have led to the Bureau taking it more seriously than they should have. So the whole thing is, by not saying that Sussman has a, a horse in this race, it launched this investigation. But would also, and I don't have the answer to this, I'll just throw it out there. This guy, Michael Hellman, was given this, you know, this lead. He looked at it and said, there's nothing there. 
I don't know if he said it's a marketing arm, but it was. There's nothing there. But get this. On the seventh floor, which is where all the higher brass and the FBI are, on the seventh floor, the word got back to uh, these FBI agents that they are fired up about this server, according to Joseph Pletka. He wrote an internal message to another agent working on the issue, uh, Curtis Hyde. He said, reach out and put tools on it. It's not an option. We must do it. Pentka will testify today about the Alpha Bank uh, tip. Uh, and he says it was relatively modest. It was a limited offshoot of a much broader, more uh, urgent investigation of the Russia interference in the 2016 election. So he says we were trying to find out what Russia did, and we didn't think it was a big deal that Trump was somehow linked to Alpha Bank. But we know that's a soft pedal backwards because we know the whole Mueller investigation was to go after Donald Trump. We know that. Had it led there. Bill Priestep, who led the FBI's counterintelligence division in 2016, said he recalled regular briefings about the broader Trump-Russia investigation known as Crossfire Hurricane, but they didn't recall briefings on Alpha Bank. Quote, it was not something I regularly was briefed on. It's not really something I recall correctly. Uh, Priestep said he's now retired from the law enforcement agency. He says it just kind of fizzled out. Really? But it was enough to help launch and get a FISA warrant to follow Carter Page. Unbelievable. They also said the FBI intelligence report indicated the FBI viewed Alpha Bank as closely connected to Putin because in 1998, Putin was on Alpha Bank's payroll. So there you go. Putin, Trump, we got to run with this. I think this is matters. I really do. Here's Cash Patel, Cut 11. Cut 11. Uh, I'm sorry, 21. They put on the biggest disinformation campaign, second only to Hillary Clinton's effort with the Steele dossier and the Alpha Bank server narrative, which they knew was false information. They fed to a federal bureau investigative agents, and they lied to a federal court to surveil then-candidate and later President Donald Trump. This is a story everybody needs to know about. It is the biggest criminal conspiracy, and thankfully, John Durham has turned our Russiagate investigation from Congress um, into criminal prosecutions that are forcing the mainstream media to pay attention. I hope so. I don't think anyone's covering that much, but it will force it. Eric Litblau, who's one that was approached by the Hillary Clinton camp and said, listen, I got this cyber link. I'm really concerned about Donald Trump's link to Russia. Eric Litblau was uh, was wooed by the Clinton camp. He might be called to the stand. That might be a problem. He could refuse to go. Sussman's defense wants to call Litblau and the and waive the confidentiality of any discussion Sussman has with the journalist. And I'm not sure the Prosecution has a problem with it. So that might be interesting. Lickblau's attorney has argued that the testimony should be limited to his interaction with Sussman. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I'm going to be paying attention to this. I'll be bringing it up every single day. I really think you should, too. Do not let the networks decide what matters. This matters because this screwed up. Not only the election leading up to 2016 prevented Donald Trump from any type of honeymoon or any congratulations. They wanted to quickly say that Russia and Vladimir Putin delivered this election for him. It screwed up two and a half years for the United States of America. We spent $40 million, countless agent time, focusing on a link that didn't exist, that Mueller should have realized in the first month the probe didn't have to happen. Alan West, and then we'll take your call shortly. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here.
a radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. We're in the fight for the soul of our state. We cannot take tomorrow for granted. We're doing this for a reason. We got more wood to chop the rest of the night, all day tomorrow, till the last poll closed. And let's bring this home. And that is uh, Governor Brian Kemp. By the polls, he should be feeling pretty good about today. He wants to avoid a runoff by getting over 50 percent. Senator Perdue is just on Fox and Friends, and he said Fox News. And he just said that they're not polling the new people that are coming to vote for the first time. And they said 20 percent early voters are first-time voters didn't vote in the last election. We'll see if that math works out. Let's bring in Alan West, who knows what it's like to run an election, Florida and Texas, but grew up and spent a substantial amount of time in Georgia. Hey, uh, uh, Colonel West, welcome back. Do you think that Kemp is, from what you could tell from the people you know, does Kemp have the substantial lead the polls say he does, 30 points? Yeah, it's good to be with you, Brian. Good morning. And I was born and raised there in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, I've been calling back and talking to some folks. I think that uh, Governor Kemp is going in pretty strong uh, in this uh, primary election bid. Uh, his record is, is really well. When you look at the jobs and opportunities he's brought there, you look at uh, the stand that they took with the election law, and guess what? This was not Jim Crow 2.0. They've seen a record turnout uh, in this primary election because of those reforms that they implemented. Uh, so I think that he's going to be in good shape, and I believe that you can go on and maybe not uh, have a runoff in this election. Stacey Abrams came out a couple of days ago and says this. Um, uh, when you're number 48 for mental health and when number one in maternal mortality, when you have an incarceration rate that's on the rise and wages are on the decline, then you are the, uh, then you are not the number one place to live. Uh, she says it's not a good place to live. Uh, that's what she's trying to clarify her statements earlier. What's your reaction with the Stacey Abrams said? Well, I wonder what Stacey Abrams would say about the United States of America, because it seems to me what she's talking about applies to the Biden administration. Uh, I think Georgia is in good shape. There's no doubt about that. Uh, That's why you see a lot of people that are fleeing uh, these uh, blue states that are going down to the south, uh, being in Georgia and Florida and North Carolina. Uh, No one is leaving Georgia and going to New York and New Jersey or uh, Rhode Island. So I think that that's uh, very, uh, you know, hypocritical what she is trying to say. And again, her very far left socialist uh, way is not going to win Georgia over. And I believe that you will see enough people in the major urban population areas that will vote uh, not with her that will make sure that Brian Kemp uh, will stay in office as the governor of Georgia. Yeah, well, we'll see how that goes. What about the secretary of state, Raffensperger, who's been battling with President Trump? And so far, he's got a lead over Jody Heiss. Uh, I'm no, we don't usually talk about the secretary of state positions, but is that a rebuke on President Trump's popularity in Georgia? Well, you know, I couldn't answer that, but it is very perplexing that Raffensperger is still, you know, doing well and competing as the Secretary of State position, because uh, why did he go into a uh, consent agreement with Stacey Abrams over signatures with these mail-in ballots uh, last uh, in 2020? It's still perplexing to me. So uh, that was a failure of his instead of standing strong on a Supreme Court decision that had just been made saying that you had to have verifiable 
multiple signatures on those mail-in ballots. And why did he lessen that standard? I don't know. And so we'll see what happens at the end of the day. But uh, I don't know how Brad Raffensperger gets reelected as Secretary of State of Georgia. What's your take on this battle between Trump and Pence uh, and the fact that Pence went out of his way to, to campaign for Kemp, uh, even though it wasn't necessarily – it's not like it's a nip-and-tuck race. Well, I tell you, there there is definitely a schism, uh, no doubt, between what would people may want to say is the establishment of the GOP and then the America First Trump uh, back support. Uh, and I think another thing you might want to keep an eye on is whether or not <clears throat> Herschel Walker will be challenged by the uh, former Navy SEAL there in that Senate race. Maybe that will go to a runoff because the young man is doing pretty good, uh, but the popularity of Herschel Walker may end up. Uh, overcoming uh, his efforts. But without a doubt, uh, I don't understand why you have this uh, schism between the former president and vice president, but it's definitely going to play out in this race. Okay, uh, let's go to, um, by the way, who do you want? Do you want Herschel Walker? You know, uh, you, you, that's a tough question to, to put me under because, uh, you know, I uh, I know Herschel personally, uh, and I was first introduced to Herschel in his first football game, which was against us, the University of Tennessee, and he ended up scoring two touchdowns second half and beating us. But I also do want to see more military veterans running for office as well. So the best man will win. Georgia can cannot do bad with either one of them. Understood. Uh, you know, I know Doug Collins came out and said to me on Saturday that Herschel needs reps in a contentious situation. He needs uncomfortable interviews and uncomfortable debates because there's nothing like reps that get you ready for it. You, you understand what that's like. Does Doug Collins have a legitimate worry? Obviously a Republican. Yeah. No, I think you, you you do, and that's just just the same as, you know, if you train hard, you'll do well when you go into combat. If you practice hard, you'll do well going into a, a football game, and I, I think Herschel understands that, and I believe that that's something that uh, he will step up his game and get ready to run against Raphael Warnock if that comes to uh, to be the case. Uh, it's Latham uh, Sadler is the Navy veteran uh, and banker. Yes. Uh, um, there you also have contractor Kelvin King. And uh, a state rep in Josh Clark. I want to, but a state you know very well is is Texas, and you have Henry yeah. Cuellar fighting for it. And I, I rarely bring it to Democratic intramural battles, but it means so much. He's a pro-life Democrat who's strong on the border, and they're primarying him again. This time by this woman mm-hmm. Jessica Cisneros again, backed by Barry Sanders yeah. and Elizabeth Warren, who would have no shot in almost any outside Austin. Any city in Texas, why is this so close? Well, I think, once again, it's the, the money that is uh, flowing into to this race, and there are certain urban areas that uh, you know, will, will affect this race. But this is the exact same thing that happened with Blue Dog conservative Democrats all across the country uh, to the point where, like you say, Henry Coyar is one of the last. Uh, you also have Congressman Ryan up in Ohio, who is, is another one of those conservative Democrats that's being pushed aside. But I think that Henry Coyar will end up 
prevailing because the border situation is just so horrific. Uh, and, and really the Hispanic community, they're not a community that believes in murdering babies in the womb. They are a pro-life community. They're a very faith-based community. And I think he'll end up prevailing once again, even though you've had the likes of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others trying to come down and push uh, Mrs. Cisneros. So the other thing is you've got to be torn a little bit. Because you know that if Cisneros wins, the Republicans have a great chance of grabbing that seat. Oh, I, well, without a doubt, uh, that that is that is something very uh, very evident. And you have some very good quality people that are running in that race down there on the Republican side. As a matter of fact, uh, they're going to a runoff today uh, for the Republican nomination uh, between a couple of young ladies down there. So I think that without a doubt, you know, it's going to be competitive. And I think the Republicans may end up picking two to three uh, congressional districts along the Rio Grande Valley area uh, as well. Um, I want to bring you to an analysis from Ed O'Keefe on Face the Nation, and he says he's finding that you're just off the road now competing. Not only did you represent the Republican Party in Texas for a year, but you also ran for governor. Cut 11. The fact that young voters, black voters, Latino voters now also are in agreement that the president isn't necessarily doing enough to take on the economic challenges and inflation. That's the secret sauce. If you can't convince young people, black people, Latino voters in this state, like Georgia, and others across the country, you're going to see Democrats lose big statewide elections. And that, to me, is stunning. I never expect the Hispanic vote to go so strongly, according to the polls, to Republicans so quickly. But that's happening, and black voters are disenchanted. But, you know, they're disenchanted because the Build Back Better didn't pass. You know, they're disenchanted because the Supreme Court wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, made bigger. Uh, wasn't packed. So the, the things that disappointed out, according to the polls, worry me. But the fact is that they are so dislodged from the Democratic Party is an opportunity for your party. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that what it has to be about is not getting people to align themselves with a, a political party, but aligning their principles and values. And when you go down into the Rio Grande Valley, you see people that want better education opportunities, better uh, economic opportunities. They do not want to see a wide open border. Uh, they don't want to see the drug trafficking, human and sex trafficking crisis and issues that we're facing here in the state of Texas. And when you look to our inner city community, where you have the left that's been talking about defunding the police and this uh, bail reform where they're allowing violent felons to be released back out into the streets, that's severely affecting the urban population centers, and the crime is on the rise. Here in Dallas County, where you've got a Democrat district attorney that does not want to prosecute any criminal cases below uh, a $750 value, uh, that means that want to crime is, is just on the rise. And so those those things are coming together, and you're going to see an incredible shift of blacks and Hispanics away from this progressive socialist, cultural Marxist uh, standard, because everyone wants to see their kids educated, not indoctrinated, and that's another critical issue. So, as you know, the war is raging in Ukraine, and they did have their most devastating news yesterday. The barracks was blown up. About 80 Ukrainians lost their life, many of which were just in the barracks sleeping. But the Russians, for the most part, has been an epic fail, now adding Sweden and Finland, an epic disaster into NATO, which seems to be inevitable as of right now. But as they do that, President Zelensky uh, pushed back on Jonathan Swan, who asked a good question, because there's a lot of people in America that says, enough with Ukraine. Let's talk more about here. 
and why does it matter? Cut 32. First of all, they have to start reading some memoirs of the Second World War. So what can I say to the people who think that this is just for Europe, this is far away, this is not in our backyard, this is somewhere in the world. But the world is much smaller than we think. So President Zelensky recommends for people who don't think this war is important to America to read a memoir of World War II. Uh, your reaction, Colonel West? Well, without a doubt, there are parallels. If you look at the, the mid-1930s uh, to the early uh, late-1930s in Europe to what we see happening today, uh, you know, back then it was Germany and Japan. Today it is Russia and China. You can throw in Iran there as well and, uh, of course, militant Islamic jihadism. But if if we were taking care of business at home, then I think that the American people would be more uh, accommodating of us sending, you know, $40 billion when your border is wide open here. You can't get baby formula on the uh, on the shelves. That's very uh, troubling and distressing for the American people. We don't want to see the indiscriminate targeting and killing of uh, women and children there in Ukraine, but we've got hundreds of thousands of Americans that are losing their lives because of fentanyl overdoses right here, and that's being shipped over from China to the drug cartels and brought over the border into the United States. So uh, I think that the, the government can walk and chew gum, but the most important chewing of gum needs to be right here in America first. Right. I mean, we could do both. Uh, we have to have a foreign policy and we have to have a domestic policy. Uh, they should be two separate budgets as well. President Biden creating a firestorm overseas again. Cut 25. Yeah. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. Okay. That's not the commitment we made. We said we would support them in a strategic ambiguity and give them defense weapons, but that's not the commitment we made. And now his staff walks him back. Here's Lloyd Austin, cut 26. As the president said, uh, our one, t- uh, pilot, uh, one China policy has not changed. Uh, he uh, reiterated that policy and our commitment to peace and stability across, uh, across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, he also uh, uh, highlighted our commitment under the Taiwan Relations Act uh, to help uh, provide Taiwan uh, the means to defend itself. So, again, our policy has not changed. He totally did change. What he said is different from what the president said. They think we're idiots. Who's right? Well, I don't know who's right. It's kind of like the uh, Abbott and Costello well, routine. Who's on first? What's but who has second? Colonel West I mean, philosophy? Colonel West, who most adheres to your philosophy? Let, let Taiwan well, defend itself you, or fight for, with them? No, I, th- I think that we have to build coalitions there in the Pacific Rim, just the same as coalitions with, you know, based upon NATO, to be able to provide those uh, security agreements and uh, security relationships. But what troubles me is that you've got an administration, they're all over the place. They're not on the same sheet of music. I, I wonder if they it's even terrible. have, you know, press conferences, not press conferences, but uh, staff meetings. Uh, do they have updates and, and synchronization meetings before you have a major trip like this for a president going on a foreign policy? policy visit to make sure that everyone has the right narrative and talking points. This is very, uh, you know, disconcerting for the United States of America because we have a huge disconnect between a president
president that just flies off the cuff, and then we have a staff and a cabinet that has to try to go in and clean it up afterwards. Right, but it might be his philosophy because it's the second time he said the same exact thing. He said it last year, too. So either he's a slow learner or his staff has turned against him. Uh, either way, we're doomed. Uh, Colonel West, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Brian. Thank uh, you. All right, we tackle the world's problems. Now it's your turn to tackle the world's problems. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. You know, when we talk about our children, I know for this group, we all believe that when we talk about the children of the community, they are a children of the community. So profound. And as I tweeted out last night, I got over a thousand likes, like nine seconds. Uh, I'm so much smarter having heard that. <laughs> she, she, evidently, that's her new thing now. She repeats exactly the same thing over and over again, but nods more. Uh, Jim, listening on Freedom 970 in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jim. Hi, Brian. I, I wanted to ask you a question. I wonder if I'm being a little too hard, but this is how I think. The Biden administration equals dereliction. That's an equation just like e equals MC squared, because I think a southern border economy, the energy supply, Afghanistan, baby formula, it's just the Biden administration equals dereliction. They're just not doing their job. I mean, I was just thinking about this. So, you know, if you're the FDA and you go in there and you see Abbott Labs and you see it's a mess and you see some problems, okay, fine. There was some problems. Okay, I understand that. The whistleblower brought you there. I understand that. But if there's only four baby manufacturers and you're finding about this in December or even October, you say you stay there, FDA, until it's fixed. And then you report that to the U.S. Agriculture Department and the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and you say this could be a catastrophe. This is 40% of our supply. If this three months without any manufacturing come out of this lab, this whole country will be 50% short. You do that math. We can't do that, Jim. You can't do that in Portland. I can't do that in New York. The FDA does this for a living. There's people just focused on things like this. So baby formula can't be made effectively at the home. So they did this, they stuck it in our lap, and all of a sudden it becomes a, a message in April and the president says, I can't be a mind reader. You don't have to be. Listen to a press conference in February and the FDA in December. Maddening. Brian Kilmeade Show. So much more to go. You're listening. Don't move. one 408 7669 Be a part of it. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1 866 408 7669. We have a busy hour coming your way here, coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world. And hopefully they're listening somewhere in the Ukraine. You can also get us on the podcast, which means you make up your own schedule. Uh, busy hour coming your way. Bill Crane will bring us inside the Georgia election. And we'll have Barney and company. We'll do a simulcast there, so we'll talk on the business channel. George P. Bush is standing by. The Texas Land Commissioner wants to be uh, get the nomination to be the Attorney General of Texas. First thing first, let's get to the big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by LifeVac. Save a life in a choking emergency. Visit LifeVac.net to learn more and use code BK10 to save 10%. Number three. The biggest themes that we got out of today's testimony was that there was a close hold on Sussman, which in the FBI means that they hid the source of the information. And that was highly convenient considering that Michael Sussman was retained by the DNC and Hillary Clinton for America campaign. Trump attorney speaking out about the Durham trial. You might not be paying attention, but I hope you are. It really matters a lot. We're watching so much of unwind about the FBI and the Hillary Clinton camp. We'll bring you the latest as we get into the second week and final week of this first trial in the Durham investigation. Number two. When it comes to the gas prices, we're going through an incredible transition that is taking place that God willing, when it's over, we'll be stronger and the world will be stronger unless we rely on fossil fuels when this is over. I mean, what, did he just say it's kind of good that the prices of gas is going up so we'll be stronger in the end? Really? You live paycheck to paycheck. You're not going to welcome those remarks. Economy, gas prices, still the number one thing. Inflation, the top concern. Republicans and Democrats, we'll break it all down for you. Number one. I do think Governor Kemp, if he is nominated, uh, this is the highest profile race where President, former President Trump came out against the candidate. If Governor Kemp is to win tomorrow and he's uh, able to be reelected, I think you have to begin to think about him as a presidential candidate. That's kind of interesting. That's the first time I heard that, but that's Democrat Harold Ford. Another intriguing primary Tuesday in the States. Not only do you have Georgia, you have a lot of intrigue in uh, Arkansas, Alabama for the Senate race, and in uh, Texas. Not only uh, Congressman Cuellar and this uh, Bernie Sanders wannabe, uh, this uh, Jessica Cisneros on a border. You wouldn't think Texas would welcome it, but you can indeed walk away with the nomination. And the other big intrigue one, high-profile one, is Ken Paxton, the sitting attorney general, and George P. Bush, the sitting land, uh, the land manager, uh, Texas land commissioner, uh, and he is with us now. Uh, George, welcome back. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, George, everything I read is you're surging at the end. Not easy to unseat a sitting attorney general. How do you feel right now? I feel great. You know, there is uh, a lot of fluctuation in the polling. We were written off by the political establishment as dead in the runoff, with even one poll showing us down 40%. Uh, but with a poll heading into early voting showing us within the margin of error, it just indicates that his support is collapsing and mine is peaking just at the right time. Uh, we're running a grassroots retail campaign, 600 registered volunteers, block walking, phone banking, and poll greeting in, on this last day. Uh, as is the case around the country, we expect uh, a, a low turnout uh, primary runoff. But because we've been micro-targeting voters, because we've been focusing on securing the border, because we're focused on backing the thin blue line in Texas, we're going to win this race and uh, really excited to be the nominee for our party so that we can beat the Democrats and the far left agenda that they're presenting here in Texas. So here's what Ken Paxton said yesterday uh, in an interview on Fox Digital. He says, I'm kind of I'm kind of in the way of the Bush dynasty plan to move this guy, that guy up to bigger and higher offices. It is reality that he's kind of the last one and they have big plans for him to be probably governor or president of the United States. And this is just a stepping stone. What's your reaction? Well, that's pretty rich coming from a guy who's uh, been around the Capitol for 22 years as a as a swamp creature who has abused office. And Brian, you know, in this campaign, he has dropped millions of dollars. I've been outspent by close to 10 million dollars with negative attack ads, distorting 
my record. If I were in office for 20 years, I think I would have had an accomplishment to to brag about, but he hasn't. He's decided to run against my family, run against uh, and distort my record, which is really a a tremendous shame. So in the meantime, I'm going to focus on specific ideas to secure the border, back our law enforcement, which are everyday issues facing Texans that they know that are not being addressed by a guy that's an indicted felon. So, you know, even though Title 42 is still in the books, Border Patrol agents tell me that we're still going to encounter close to 15,000, if not the 18,000 illegal encounters that were projected if Title 42 was lifted. So uh, we got, you know, while he's talking about a Bush family, I'm talking real issues that affect everyday Texans. Uh, so you, you know, in the runoff, he had about 40 percent of the vote. You had 22 percent of the vote. How did you approach trying to make up that distance? Well, it started with outreach to the other two honorable candidates, that's Justice Guzman and, and Congressman Gomert. We debated 13 times throughout the state of Texas, and, and I honor their, their courage to actually show up. But, you know, on March 2, I challenged Ken to 10 debates, five televised and five in front of grassroots conservatives. He didn't accept one invitation. And, and the grassroots is smart. They, they see through the, the smoke screen. Um, and his strategy of diverting any discussion away from his legal challenges. And I think that's going to come back and bite him. So step number one was reaching out to folks that didn't vote for me, but making them understand that we agreed on 99% of the issues, that this is about taking on voting fraud, human trafficking, securing border, backing law enforcement, but with specific ideas that can only be done when there's restored trust between this office the legislature, the governor, and most importantly, the people of Texas. And unfortunately, because since he's abused office these past, the past few years, we just don't have that, that trust there, and we can't get this important work done. So uh, would, uh, Paxton's looking at what kind of indictments, and why do you think they've uh, been so slow to come forward with it, whether they're going to drop it or move forward with it? So the, the first set of indictments relate to securities fraud. These are felony charges, and he's facing 99 years of maximum criminal sentencing in a Houston court. He's in year six, and he proclaims his innocence. But if he were so innocent, then he would just sit down for his jury trial by a, a jury of his peers and be evaluated and clear the air for not only Republicans, but for the people of Texas. Secondly, he's facing an FBI investigation looking into allegations of bribery and corruption, and these are led by his seven top lieutenants that he personally recruited to the agency. These aren't deep staters or folks that hold a grudge or charges from the media. These are his personal staffers that are now pursuing a whistleblower case against him, which prompted Senator Cornyn to say that this is all an embarrassment for the state of Texas, who he himself was a former attorney general and knows that at the top of the chain of command is our top law enforcement official who, as an indicted felon, cannot wear the uniform of our honorable law enforcement officials in Texas. And so that, that's what's embarrassing. That's what's at stake in this race. And we need to clear the air either by democratically removing him from office or for him to just exercise the Sixth Amendment right to a speedy criminal trial evaluated by his peers. So uh, we're talking to George P. Bush right now, who wants to be the next attorney general and is uh, the two-term Texas land commissioner, has been since 2015. So, George, do you think that there's a chance that this indictment comes down after this battle is done? So if he prevails against you, he could actually be be criminally charged sometime in the period between November and now. Absolutely. And I think we'd be naive to think that this administration – 
doesn't leverage the Department of Justice as a political arm and that Merrick Garland will immediately drop indictments ranging from bribery to corruption to obstruction of justice, sending Ken Paxton to jail for the second time this term, um, putting him up as a poster child across the nation uh, as a public integrity case, and handing the Democrats their first statewide elective office in over 30 years. One other thing I'll remind your viewers and your listeners is that, you know, Texas has not ceded a, a statewide office in close to 30 years. And since that time, under the election code, we can't switch our nominees midstream. So if he gets convicted or indicted on a separate suite of charges, there's nothing that the party can do to change the nominee. So we've got to make that choice. This is the last day that we can make that choice to go with somebody who's a con constitutional conservative who's going to get the job done, take on the Biden administration, liberal progressives at the local level, but be above reproach. A Christian, a family man, somebody who's going to put our state first rather than themselves. And the number one issue that people bring up to you when you're out and about talking to Texans? Border, border, border. It doesn't matter if you're in the High Plains, El Paso, Beaumont, Port Arthur, or in the Rio Grande Valley. Everybody wants to secure the border. Uh, Democrats, Republicans, all alike know that uh, th this is unacceptable and they need a president that's actually going to abide by his constitutional res responsibilities to protect the states. And that's why, Brian, in this campaign, I asserted our state sovereignty as the lead lawyer. I would have drafted an advisory opinion a long time ago, along with Arizona, stating that we are being invaded by bloody drug cartels. And under Article 1, Section 10, the states have a right to protect themselves, and we need to enforce federal immigration law, even if it's on our own dime and account, and then uh, wait for a Republican president to reimburse us. But we have reached an unacceptable level of, of invasion where a city like El Paso, which isn't exactly known as a conservative bastion, has declared their city a state of emergency, seeking federal reimbursement from the Biden administration. But we know through the Del Rio Haitian migrant caravan crisis, the Rio Grande Valley crisis, whether it was during the Obama days or during the first year of the Biden times, that they're not going to reimburse us. And so um, the, the struggle continues. Everybody in Texas is talking about this. They want action instead of words. Absolutely. Uh, why do you think that hasn't been declared yet? Because the governor really has gone to extremes to the point where you get a lot of criticism, the, the border between the backup of the border for a while because you want to make sure that Mexico understood how serious this was going directly to the Mexican government to try to make uh, deals with the remain in Mexico policy to start to build your own wall, which you have supervised. And you've shown me pictures of. So, and I've actually met people on a plane the other day uh, who told me they were uh, they're actually from Long Island. It was down to building the federal wall and then was pushed over to build the Texas wall, and he was showing me pictures too. So what, why do you think he hasn't done that, being that the people of Texas want it done so badly where the federal government doesn't? Well, he, he has stated that he's concerned about risking criminal liability of our law enforcement officials if we do enforce federal immigration law. And I understand that, but my contention is let's work through this. Let's work together and, and perhaps even have a test case or a commitment from the Texas legislature to say that they will indemnify or backstop any state local law enforcement official in the event that this White House decides to, to prosecute them on a criminal basis. The, the reality is, Brian, we've reached an alarming level uh, of invasion. And so what that means is Legally, yes, we need to overturn U.S. versus Arizona, which is Supreme Court guidance that says we can't enforce federal immigration law. 
But this is a different set of circumstances because this is historically high level of, of illegal immigration. And number two, we have a different court than what we did during the Pyler versus Doe days or the U.S. versus Arizona case in the 80s. Um, so all I'm saying is that as somebody who swears to uphold the Constitution, the laws of the state and of this country, we need to do everything we can on our time, on the watch, uh, protecting our communities. Because right now the bill is excessively growing, whether it's health care, education. And that's why it's even infuriating Democrats in the border communities. And they voted in big numbers for Donald Trump, including in Zapata County. And, and it's predicted, Brian, that there's probably going to be two Republican members of Congress, Maida Flores and Monica de la Cruz, to win their races. So it's good for Republican Party politics, but horrible policy for the state of Texas. So I'm just going to be an aggressive attorney and do what we can to challenge this administration to create as much space as possible for our law enforcement officials. And, you know, the president has never spoken. President Trump has not spoken out against you. He just went with Paxton and did a lot of suing after the 2020 election. And that was going to be an uphill battle. Um, So but he's but I know for a fact he has nothing but nice things to say about you, as does Don uh, Jr. So uh, you're not uh, you're not anybody's candidate. In other words, you yourself, Uh, George. (laughs) Well, if you go ahead. Yeah, I'll just say that a lot of his supporters are endorsing us. Twenty members of his cabinet, Ron Vitello, his ICE director, Brandon Judd, who advised him on border. So we have his team supporting this campaign and this agenda. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot like we're seeing across the country. It's kind of split. President picks one person, and a lot of his staff picks the other, especially in Pennsylvania with Dave McCormick and, and Dr. Oz. Hey, thanks so much, George P. Best of luck. Thank you, Brian. George P. Bush, uh, the current Texas Land Commissioner, and wants to be the next Attorney General. We'll see if he gets his nomination today. Uh, polls close at 9 o'clock uh, Eastern Time. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Back with your calls in just a moment. And then we go inside Georgia politics with Bill Crane. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. It is my responsibility to keep New Yorkers safe. My heart goes out to that family. I am sorry that they lost their loved one. I thank God I'm the mayor right now and not those that don't understand the urgency of this moment. Well, like uh, Ray Kelly said yesterday on our channel, uh, the mayor gives a great speech. uh, But we're the action. And what they're talking about is the fourth slaying on a subway this year already. Fourth. This guy, 1140 in the morning. Um. Uh, Daniel Enrique uh, gets shot in the stomach uh, by a guy we're looking for that's had 19 prior arrests that last was brought in front of a judge. And the prosecution said, listen, you got to lock this guy up. He was uh, there for stealing a motorcycle. But prior to that was attempted murder. Look at his record. And they said, well, it's not bail eligible. I said, well, you should do it. He goes, I'll make him bail eligible. We'll put him on probation. We'll put him on supervised release and find and put a bail at one dollar. Big joke, right? How does that judge feel now? Because this guy is now dead. He's a Goldman Sachs executive. He was uh, shot in the stomach because he won- he's tired of playing surge, tired of paying surge Uber prices. So he said, you know, Uber's getting so expensive. I just got to you know, suck it up and go take a subway. He didn't want to do it. 
So he takes it and gets killed. Gary, listening online in Clearwater, Florida. Hey, Gary. Hey, Brian. How are you? Great. You know, for 45 years, I've been watching a pattern of lies and narrative changes from the Democratic Party, which has caused all of these problems. There isn't a single problem going on today that hasn't been caused by, by their lies, by their phony narrative changes. And I do think that it is really starting to catch up with them, uh, looking at the polls, looking at Biden's approval ratings. And I'm just hoping that the people that were gullible enough to believe the Democratic Party and Biden through, through the election hoax and everything else are finally starting to realize that this is important. This is for all the marbles. I hope so. I mean, uh, everything that they've done, tell me about their programs. Tell me what the results have been. Oh, uh, inflation was going to be an issue. There was a lot of spending, $6.something trillion on the pandemic. But the last $2 trillion were totally unnecessary, and he's looking to pile even more on. So it's nuts. Uh, so he's just an oblivious. And now he's kind of happy that gas prices are going so far up that we're going to go to electric vehicles or use mass transportation. He's cheering for the strife in the, for the American people and the working and middle class. Are you kidding? While vilifying corporations? Who exactly are you for? Bill Crane next. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. And I'm here because Brian Kemp is the only candidate in tomorrow's primary who has already defeated Stacey Abrams, whether she knows it or not. And I'm here because Stacey Abrams can never be governor of the great state of Georgia. And that's what Brian Kemp hopes, uh, hopes because he looks like he's going to have a rematch again. But will it be a runoff? Will he get over 50 percent? What about Herschel Walker? Will he have a runoff? Uh, and what about the secretary of state? A lot of intrigue, as usual, in Georgia. Uh, here to unwind it all, uh, Bill Crane. He's a senior communication strategist and is the chief political analyst at WSB Radio and WSB TV uh, Action News in Atlanta and a syndicated columnist called One Man's Opinion. Bill, welcome back. It's always a pleasure, Brian. i got to hire you to do my PR. Uh, absolutely. This is just your introduction. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, Bill, are you surprised this is Pence against Trump? Uh, were you surprised that Senator Perdue seemingly has struggled so much after getting the Trump endorsement? I was not surprised that as we see these final final closing days to see the vice president kind of come in and smile and to an extent kind of flip a finger uh, in the direction of the former president. But uh, I've never seen him as animated. As for the Purdue campaign, it's been – you know, as someone who admired his record in the U.S. Senate, it's been sad sort of watching this limp to the finish. Um, but there are races. There are seven endorsees, and, and uh, President Trump has added a few in the last few days, some members of Congress who actually don't have primary opposition. Um, Herschel Walker is the strongest performer and will, to your question before I joined you, I believe will win handily and without a runoff the Republican nomination and then goes and takes the – the campaign to Raphael Warnock, the Democratic incumbent senator. All right, so let's start with Herschel. Uh, what has impressed you most and least about Herschel that you've seen? Least is that he still hasn't 
engaged in a really substantial way with any of his opponents, and his campaigning tends to be pretty controlled. Best and most, uh, he's a more compelling speaker than you might think. And on the on the trail, he has some stories that he tells about his own experience, his family uniting us as Americans, not being black Americans or white Americans or Hispanic Americans, but as Americans, uh, and talks about the pride that he has of being a Georgian in a very inspirational way that has not really been covered by the media and I think will be difficult for them to avoid in the fall. And I also think he's done a pretty decent job of parrying he and his campaign team the mud that's been drug up from his own autobiography that he wrote and released several years ago, uh, personal stories about uh, his, his own bouts with multiple personality disorder that he disclosed, but they're being treated as if they're being dug up by some investigative reporter opposition research, most of all that came out of his own book. Uh, yeah, and he does talk about what he did to overcome it. They're going to bring up his uh, relationships and his business practices, uh, and it's going to come up. Uh, Warnock is very good on his feet. Uh, the question is, you know, he never really had a debate against Senator Purdue, but he ends up beating Purdue in the runoff. So when they start squaring off, do you think this is going to be one of these ugly campaigns? Their styles are different, and I, I don't think either one of them will start there. It will depend, I guess, on how close the race looks as as we roll into the fall campaign. Um, we've got on the GOP side in Georgia some healing to do. There will be several runoffs. There will be down-ticket runoffs, and, and it's not clear yet what role President Trump will play, not only in those runoffs but in the fall. I mean, I think you can easily claim – and lay some blame in the uh, Senate runoffs in 2020 that occurred on January the 5th of 2021 that the president was very focused on getting talk and discussion around stop the steal and what happened in November and less so on what needed to happen in those runoffs. And about 400,000 Republicans who thought their votes didn't count didn't vote. They stayed home. If that happens again in the fall, then we can get used to saying Governor Stacey Abrams here. But if the GOP kind of puts itself back together again and realizes they got more things they have in common than they have a difference – between factions of the party, then it looks good for Brian Kemp's reelection in the fall. Right. So let's let's switch uh, switch over to him, uh, Brian Kemp. Uh, by the last polls, twenty thirty points up. Will you project that he will need a runoff? He will not have a runoff. Will not. He will not. And and the question is, we've got record early voting underway. Uh, Six hundred thousand Georgians have already voted as of Friday. The majority of that is on the GOP side because of these two ticket topping contests. The question is what the margin will be, and I will acknowledge that some of the voter turnout is really heavy in rural areas where the president did incredibly well, counties that he won 75 and 80 percent in November of 2020, and I can't tell you which of that vote is David Perdue or Brian Kemp. I will also mention that we have about 30,000 Democrats who are crossing over. Traditional Democratic voters in metro counties, and the word is that they're somewhat aimed at both the governor's race and the secretary of state's race trying to keep Jody Heiss out of getting into a runoff with Brad Raffensperger, the incumbent Republican secretary of state. So wait a second. So you say Democrats are coming over to vote in the Republican primary? That's correct. We've so far, the secretary of state's office has identified about 34,000 standard Democratic, multiple Democratic primary, presidential primary, Democratic runoff voters who, for whatever reason, in 2020 voted Democratic are now in 2022 voting in the Republican primary. Now, does that prov- we don't well, we don't have we don't have party registration in the state of Georgia. That's legal. And they what they can't do is vote in the Republican primary and then come back and vote in the Democratic runoff. You can't cross from one to the other, but you can vote in either primary or an open primary state. And, and why would they want Brad uh, Ravensburg? 
Jody Heiss has made some pretty inflammatory remarks in his commentary of what he would do if elected Secretary of State and kind of roll back the clock and doing away with drop boxes, doing away with at-will absentee voting, uh, no-excuse absentee voting, and some things that have been brought in by Republican administrations since uh, Sonny Perdue was governor back in 2005. And I, we haven't had a chance to talk in a while, but interestingly, Sonny Perdue, David Perdue's first cousin, who's now the chancellor of the Board of Regents, has stayed out of this race. Right. Uh, Brian Kemp put, put him, hired him, gave him a great job. So why would he go to bat for his cousin? Uh, right. I mean, it's obvious that there was some connection there, but uh, your first cousin who sort of c- who connected with and talked David Perdue into first running for the Senate, who also served with Brian Kemp in the state Senate and appointed Brian Kemp as Secretary of State, uh, didn't choose to endorse before or after he became Chancellor of the University System of Georgia. I want you to hear what Harold Ford said about Brian Kemp. Cut four. I do think Governor Kemp, if he is nominated, uh, this is the highest profile race where President, former President Trump came out against the candidate. Obviously, Vice President Pence has been there. If Governor Kemp is to win tomorrow and he's uh, able to be reelected, I think you have to begin to think about him as a presidential candidate uh, along the line in the side of Pompeo and DeSantis. Do you agree with that? No. And I like Brian Kemp, but I don't think he has any desire to be president of the United States. I, I think the what the result will say if, say, Brian Kemp's got a 15-point lead and no runoff is – how viable is Donald Trump in 2024 and and how the other states, um, the, the president is also engaged in Texas and Alabama that are also having elections today, Right. Uh, how those endorsees fare um, will speak to – You know, I, I think the challenge for President Trump is you have to have a vision for the future. You can talk about your record, and, and obviously there are millions of voters that support him and, and follow and, and support his record in office, but you can't just talk about the past. And the inordinate focus on the Dominion Voting Services equipment and the 2020 election, I think, has faded as an important or most important issue among a majority of Republican voters at this point. It wasn't that way a year ago, but now we're you know, coming on two years from that election, and it's fading in the rear view. Uh, we're, with, uh, we're with right now Bill Crane. Uh, if you want anything to – you want to know what's going on before it happens in Georgia, Bill's the guy to go to. Uh, I want you to hear what Stacey Abrams said or, re- or listen with our audience. The audio is not great, but the message is also worse if you're Stacey Abrams. Cut to. I'm ready to go because I know that we have to have a conversation about who we are in this state and what we want for each other and from each other. I am tired of hearing about being the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live and the crowd roared. Uh, why would uh, why would she be? Do you think that she regrets making that comment? We're the worst state in the union to live. She'll hear it again. I, I don't. You know, one, uh, Stacey Abrams, tactically, logistically speaking, running you know in the elections process is brilliant. But some of her emotional statements in campaign events, she she will and and you know, being the president of the world in Star Trek, are decisions that she'll regret in the fall. We are not just the top state to do business in, but we were one of the first states to come out of the pandemic. We've managed to keep that kind of under control. We have a multi-billion dollar budget surplus, the largest budget in the history of the state. Governor Kemp was able to give school teachers the back half of a $5,000 raise he promised at the beginning of his first term. Um, we have record unemployment and record employment, which other states can't quite say. We have industries that are struggling. I mean, the, the, certainly hospitality sector in particular coming out of the pandemic, and there are supply chain issues. But things are performing pretty well, and we've landed two major mega economic, economic development projects that the governor can claim, both in the automotive sector, in the Rivian and now Hyundai electric vehicle plants. 
which those two without all the ancillary spinoff are 15,000 jobs, and other states would envy that. So I do understand that, that uh, Stacey Abrams got a, has a different agenda and a different voting base. She'll be talking a lot about Medicare expansion and abortion right. rights, but I don't know that that's a majority staple if the GOP can put it back together again. Yeah, we'll see what happens uh, with that matchup, because if Stacey Abrams wins, i got to think she's going to run for president. Uh, Bill, I'll love to, to, to uh, talk to you in the aftermath, too. Is that all right? I'll be here. You Thank got you, it. Sir. Thanks for the call. Bill Bye. Crane, WSB TV and radio, and also an outstanding syndicated columnist. Thanks so much. Back in a moment, Stuart Borney. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. We've got a few minutes, and Stuart Varney will be uh, joining us, and we'll be joining him. We'll do a simulcast and then finish up with your phone call, so get in line. 1-866-408-7669. Stuart Varney will be with us uh, in a moment, and Stuart Varney was on this morning. He actually had a chance to talk to President Trump. Moments ago on his show, he's going to play a clip for me. I'm obviously doing this show. I did not hear it. We'll listen to it together. So that should be good. Uh, President Trump on the line in Georgia today, hoping to bolster Senator Purdue. But nobody thinks Purdue is going to uh, do well. And we just had Bill Crane on, who does not think that he's even going to force a runoff. So here we go. Let's listen in together. It is 10.51 Eastern Time. Brian Kilmeade joins us. Brian, earlier today I had President Trump on the, uh, on the show Take a listen to what he had to say about Putin. Roll tape. The Russia-Ukraine situation, Stuart, would have never, ever happened. Zero chance under the Trump administration. So Putin would not have invaded Ukraine. He wouldn't have done it. He would have been scared of you because he doesn't know what you're going to do. He was there for four years and he didn't do it. I said, you don't do it. I'm not going to say exactly what I said, but it was much rougher than I'd like to say on television. Brian, the former president did say to me, that whilst he was president, he talked to Putin and told Putin, don't invade Ukraine. I think that was a fine piece of news right there. Yeah, I mean, the president wasn't, uh, you know, the president did supply arms to Ukraine right away. He stopped at the blankets and MREs that uh, mysteriously Barack Obama and erroneously yep. gave to them after the invasion of uh, that took Crimea and they took uh, part of that so-called uh, ungoverned region there. Now we know the Donbass region. So after that happened, uh, Barack Obama says, OK, you better not do that. I'll put some minor sanctions on some of your uh, for oligarchs, and then I'm going to give blankets and MREs to the Ukrainian army. Well, the president came in and gave him uh, real arms. And there was a pause for two months and had no consequential role in Ukraine being ready to fight this war. We also were training them uh, in and out of their country for the last four years under President Trump. So that has something to do with it. And President Trump made it clear to Vladimir Putin, who I can't get inside his head. I watched the Oliver Stone interviews with Vladimir Putin. I watched Megyn Kelly interview Vladimir Putin. I still don't know what he's about. But he did feel threatened. If he legitimately yes. felt threatened by NATO, uh, President Trump made him feel better because the president was very critical of NATO, saying, you guys aren't paying your fair share. You're depending on us too much. So those combination of items might make Putin feel this is not worth it. In retrospect, you know that Putin probably regrets the day he invaded yeah, yeah. Uh, and he wouldn't have done it had Trump been the president at that time. It's primary day, Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, Texas, Minnesota. A lot of these races are a referendum on President Trump, and he thinks he's doing well. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, there, there are places he's doing well. With J.D. Vance, no doubt about it. With Dr. Yeah. Oz, there's no question. He went from uh, second to first. 
and he's up about a third thousand votes now. In Georgia, it did not help Purdue. Purdue never should have run because he had no message. Uh, it's just he's not Brian Kemp, but he was friendly with Brian Kemp, so it's kind of odd. Kemp is popular within the state. He's performed well. He opened up that state early. That's the one bitterness that a lot of people like in New York have and in yeah. California have. Georgia was one of the first to open up. He believed in the people. He empowered them. He brought Internet to the rural communities. That was a big key. He's brought a lot of industry there as well. So he's performed well. Raffensperger also against Jody Heiss. Uh, Jody Heiss was picked by by Trump to knock off the secretary of state, not there. But where the president has done well with Herschel Walker, no doubt about it, he elevated against a pretty solid field, including a Navy SEAL. So that has certainly helped. So in Georgia, it's going to be a lot of drama. But the question is, are you going to avoid a runoff? And if you avoid a runoff, you could focus right on Stacey Abrams, who will be a formidable force for Brian Kemp to beat again, although she never admits she lost the first time. But we don't talk about that. I always want to ask you, Brian, if you invest in the stock market. I don't know whether you want to tell me yes or no. I mean, it's a very private thing. Do you invest and how much have you lost? Um, <laughs> I lost. I, I checked. Uh, I checked. Was it yesterday or the day before? Uh, substantially. I saw that arrow go down. But I'm not going to worry about it uh, because I'm in for long term. I'm not taking risky investments. I do it through a financial advisor. But, um, and I know exactly what he's doing on a daily basis. Uh, but, you know, when it goes down, I watched that arrow go down. I checked it yesterday. Um, I learned in 2008 I'm not going to check my 401K uh, until something changes uh, because it, I don't need a depression. Uh, uh, you're, a, you're a young guy. Yeah. You can stay in it for the long term. Yeah. Old guys like myself, we have a, a different time horizon, you see, so it means more to us. When well, just avoid the crypto. I mean, for you, you something you don't have to worry about is the cryptocurrency. Those people are the ones having uh, heart attacks right now. They live with paddles. That is true. That uh, is true. Looking to get revived. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the big thing. But in, in the big picture, for the country, for the president of the United States to indicate it's kind of a good thing for gas prices to go up, I come from a long line well, of paycheck-to-paycheck families. And when, page, when gas goes yeah. up, everybody feels it. Not good. And I just think good. that was terrible. It is terrible. Brian, thanks for being with us. See you again next week. All right. Uh, that'll be fun. Out. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. The other thing I did not bring up with Stuart Varney, I did not bring up with Bill Crane, is the Jim Crow 2.0 election law changes that brought the Major League Baseball All-Star game out of Atlanta and into Colorado, costing the inner city millions of dollars coming out of a pandemic they can ill afford to lose including the uh, home run hitting contest and all the industry that comes with it, even coming off the pandemic. Jim Crow 2.0 has increased uh, voter turnout for black, white, everybody uh, by 102,000. That's of yesterday. It is three times more than last midterm election. So don't tell me you can't find a drop box. Don't tell me you can't find a voting booth. Don't tell me you've been knocked out uh, because of the color of your skin or the location of your home. It's not the case. It is just not the case. So I think that's important. Everybody's going to be looking at Kemp against Abrams. Abrams will be uh, be organized, be extremely well-funded. Uh, Barack Obama will be down there every other day. Joe Biden will not, and it'll be formidable. But I think that ultimately it's going to be the people of Georgia. What direction do you want your state to go? And if you look around to the liberal mayors running major cities like Atlanta, ask yourself, where do you feel more secure, in Buckhead or do you feel more secure in Atlanta? So that'll be ultimately deciding uh, between Kemp and Stacey Abrams as this rematch. And I remember, you know, George Bush was so determined to win clearly against uh, against 
uh, Senator Kerry after what happened against Senator Gore, Vice President Gore. I think uh, Kemp will have that same focus. We'll have to see. And then we'll see how Herschel Walker does when he's severely tested on the other side. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. We have a lot to do, a lot to get through, uh, including a big hour coming your way as Tom Cotton joins us. Uh, he is standing by, as well as Mike Gallagher at the bottom of the hour. Uh, both serve in our military and will bring us up to date on what's going on with Memorial Day. Believe it or not, I know you're thinking three-day weekend, but for those who serve in the military, especially or have family members who don't, uh, or do in the past, it, it means much more for those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for this country. Uh, that goes back time. Actually, on Saturday, uh, on One Nation, we'll be making sure to make tribute to that as we look back at some of the uh, some of the uh, some of the organizations that are making a huge difference with our veterans as well. So, before we get to Senator Tom Cotton, let's get to the big three. Now, with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's big three. Number three. The biggest themes that we got out of today's testimony was that there was a close hold on Sussman, which in the FBI means that they hid the source of the information. And that was highly convenient considering that Michael Sussman was retained by the DNC and Hillary Clinton for America campaign. Well, that's just unwinding what took place on day one of week two in the Durham trial of Michael Sussman. We're watching it close. We'll tell you about the two FBI agents that spoke out on the stand and what could be happening today. Number two. When it comes to the gas crisis, we're going through an incredible transition that is taking place, that God willing, when it's over, we'll be stronger and the world will be stronger and less relying on fossil fuels when this is over. Joe Biden, barely awake, economy, gas prices are still on the rise, and he seems kind of happy about it. Number one issue with Americans, Republicans and Democrats, rich and poor, working class, middle class, inflation. Mr. President, address it. Number one. I do think Governor Kemp, if he is nominated, uh, this is the highest profile race where President, former President Trump came out against the candidate. If Governor Kemp is to win tomorrow and he's uh, able to be reelected, I think you have to begin to think about him as a presidential candidate. Who knows? Possibly. I think more Youngkin will be the only upstart in there. Others um, more established will be way ahead, including the former president of the United States. But Brian Kemp has got a substantial lead over Senator Perdue, which is significant because President Trump uh, really despises Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp has not returned fire and really pushed Senator Perdue to become Governor Perdue. But that's not going to happen. With me right now is Senator Tom Cotton. He's on the Intelligence Armed Services Committee, ranking member for the Subcommittee on Criminal Justice. He's got his hands full because he's making sure a lot of veterans go back into Congress. He's supporting a whole slew. Senator, welcome back. Hey, Brian. It's good to be back on with you. Thanks for uh, the kind words, and uh, thanks for everything you do for America's veterans. And uh, as you said, you're going to honor all those who fall, have fallen in defense of our country this weekend, and I appreciate that. Yeah, well, heading out tomorrow uh, to USS Yorktown in Charleston. Uh, as you know, uh, it was rebuilt after it was blown up in uh, at the Battle of Midway. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. I think it's the 100th anniversary of the aircraft carrier. It's going to be part of the Fox Nation series, What Made America Great. 
But to get uh, just turned around, I know there's a lot of intriguing matchups out there. Uh, a couple of, um, uh, a lot of, one of, uh, I should say, one that's going to be significant, but it's not going to be competitive, is in Arkansas. And that is Sarah Sanders wants to be the next governor. What do you, th- what kind of governor do you think she'll be? Uh, I believe that Sarah will be an outstanding governor. I endorsed her several months ago, and we worked together very closely. Um, I look forward to her not just winning this fall, but also being a very strong governing partner for me and John Bozeman and the rest of our congressional delegation, as well as our Republican legislature, as we help make Arkansas one of the very best places in America to live, work, and raise a family. So right now in this context, it's pretty good time to be a Republican of all people on Face the Nation, CBS's Ed O'Keefe said this is what's happening with the numbers that he's seeing, cut 11. The fact that young voters, black voters, Latino voters now also are in agreement that the president isn't necessarily doing enough to take on the economic challenges and inflation, that's the secret sauce. If you can't convince young people, black people, Latino voters in this state, like Georgia and others across the country, you're going to see Democrats lose big statewide elections. So, I mean, inflation is the number one thing, and the president kind of indicating that he's not too upset there are high gas prices because it's going to help people go to renewables. Yeah, uh, Brian, you make a great point that uh, $5 a gallon gas is not an accident. It's not an unintended consequence. It's very much the intended consequence of Democrats' policies. They want you out of your SUV, your pickup truck, your minivan, and they want you to live in you know big, high-rise urban developments, uh, or they want you to take subways or buses to school or electric scooters or, or whatever it is that Pete Buttigieg is riding to work these days. But in most places in America, that's not the way we live. And it's just another example of how out of touch Joe Biden and the Washington Democrats are. Um, So many of of the problems they've created don't really affect the overeducated liberals that they are and who forms the the base of their uh, far-left progressive vote. Things like inflation um, or high gas prices or criminal leniency or or amnesty – um, all of these wealthy, overeducated progressives largely buy their way out of those problems. Uh, but if you're hardworking Arkansans, if you're working class Americans all around the country, every one of those is a constant daily struggle, whether it's filling up your tank on the way to gas, putting food on the table for your kids, worrying about the safety uh, of your streets, seeing the chaos at the border and the drugs and the crime that introduced in our country. Those are genuine daily challenges for Americans that Joe Biden and the Democrats just don't understand. They've created those challenges. That's why they're going to lose in November. Well, let me just, before we move on in Arkansas, do you think Jake Beckett, the former very impressive guy when he comes on our show, Jake Beckett, the former NFLer, um, uh, and uh, Pastor Heath Loftus, I know they don't have your endorsement, but do you think this is going to be close? So I've endorsed John Bozeman, who is a great senator, uh, and he's a wonderful colleague. Um, I respect everyone who's running, and I I respect in particular Jake Beckett's service. Uh, But I do believe that this election is John Bozeman's election, that he'll win tonight. I think he'll go on to be a a great uh, chairman of the Ag Committee uh, for uh, Ag Country in Arkansas. But I know that we have a lot of great candidates on the race in Arkansas that will come up a little bit short in this election, and I hope that all of them will stay engaged in the future. All right. Uh, So I also want to see – I want you to hear – what Joe Biden did say in Tokyo is he's en route. Uh, now he'll be in an hour touching down in Alaska, refueling, and then coming back home. Cut 16. Here's the situation. When it comes to the gas crisis, uh, we're going through an incredible transition 
that is taking place that, God willing, when it's over, we'll be stronger and the world will be stronger and less reliant on fossil fuels when this is over. So he wants to make sure we're not relying on fossil fuels, and he says we're going through a transition. He is jamming that transition down our throats without the transition being ready, whether it's wind, solar, or electric cars. Yeah, that's why I say that this that high gas prices are not an accident. This is what the Democrats want um, for a long time, Brian, for the rest of your lifetime and my lifetime, no doubt. Uh, the United States and certainly the rest of the world is going to be reliant on traditional energy sources like gas and oil and coal. Now, that doesn't mean that other sources like nuclear power, wind power, uh, solar power won't continue to grow, but reliable affordable, abundant energy is the lifeblood of a modern economy. And we are far, far from being able to totally phase out of fossil fuels as Joe Biden and all of these progressive Democrats want. Their their proposals are a recipe for making us poorer and weaker uh, and uh, undermining America's prosperity. So I want you to hear what Joe Biden said Monday, cut 25. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are. That's a commitment we made. Really? Okay. Uh, Here's Lloyd Austin, cut 26. As the president said, uh, our one one China policy has not changed. Uh, He... uh, Reiterated that policy and our commitment to peace and stability across uh, across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, he also uh, uh, highlighted our commitment under the Taiwan Relations Act uh, to help uh, provide Taiwan uh, the means to defend itself. So again, our policy has not changed. Of course, it is. They they think we're idiots. They just said two things totally different. One, we we give them weapons to defend themselves, like Ukraine. And number two, we fight China. Where does Tom Cotton fall? And what do you think, if you're China, what do you take from that? So, Brian, first off, the president and the White House staff have introduced confusion and ambiguity and uncertainty into one of the most dangerous flashpoints in the world, uh, China's um, irredentist claims on Taiwan. Um, Just listen to what Secretary of Defense Austin said. I don't even know what he's talking about. I mean, you could not be clearer. That reporter asked, will you intervene militarily to defend Taiwan? And Joe Biden said yes. Obviously, obviously, that's a change of the longstanding policy of strategic ambiguity. Now, about that policy, I believe it's right to change the policy, Brian. For decades, our policy about a Chinese attack on Taiwan was so-called strategic ambiguity, that we wouldn't quite say what we would do. Well, that was in part because we didn't think the Chinese military was capable of successfully invading, in part because Taiwan was still a less-than-democratic government. Neither one of those conditions hold today. The People's Liberation Army is capable of invading and occupying Taiwan. Moreover, Taiwan is a robust democracy. The time has come for strategic clarity to say simply and flatly, we will defend Taiwan if China attacks it. That's not so we can have a war. That's so we can avoid a war, Brian, so we can deter a war from happening in the first place. 
if we do not take that step, if we do not increase our defense spending, if we do not arm Taiwan and help them reform their own military, China is going to invade Taiwan in the next five years, Brian. It is going to happen. Yet Joe Biden, rather than taking a, a clear and deliberate approach to announcing what is a genuine policy change, has three times in the last nine months just kind of thrown it off the cuff only to have his own White House staff reverse it. That's why I said yesterday this has to stop. He needs to, in a careful, deliberate speech with prepared text that they release in advance, announce this policy of the United States and make it clear that no anonymous White House aide is going to reverse him once again. Don't worry. Thursday, uh, the Secretary of State is going to unveil our long-awaited China strategy. So it's coming up. Uh, Thursday, we'll have a China strategy. Until then, let's just wing it. Well, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of hopes for this uh, big speech that Secretary Blinken is going to give. They've already started to downplay it, suggesting there's not much new there. And that's too bad, because China is our number one competitor, and China is not resting uh, on its laurels. So it's time for us to start taking the actions that we need to make sure that we can defeat China uh, in this new Cold War that they long ago launched against us. All right. uh, We have Senator Tom Cotton with us a little longer. Senator, i got to bring you to uh, where we're going in Ukraine right now. The Ukrainian said, admit. They lost 80 guys when they got their barracks bombed. It was the worst day they've lost. They said they lose about 100 a, a people a day. Uh, so it's pretty, it's pretty serious stuff. But they are having tremendous success in neutralizing the offensive by the Russians who couldn't be more at, uh, ill at ease. I understand even on their national TV news, they're starting to admit that they're losing the war and it might have been a major mistake. They also had an ambassador uh, resign his position because he's embarrassed uh, by what his country's actions have done. So I'm sure if he goes home, he'll be killed or jailed. So it does take a lot of guts. But I want you to hear when, when asked what President Zelensky said, when asked why the U.S. should care about this, being that it's so many miles away. He was asked this by... Uh, by Jonathan Swan, who always does a great job. Uh, here he is, cut 32. First of all, they have to start reading uh, some memoirs of the Second World War. So what can I say to the people who think uh, that uh, this is just for Europe, this is far away, this is not in our backyard, this is somewhere in the world. But the world is uh, much smaller than we um, think. So I, li- I like his answer. And the thing is, you do have to give people a perspective. We weren't born yesterday and we weren't born in our generation. We have to look long form. You're a guy that fights the wars as well as works it dipl- diplomatically and politically. Where do you stand on where we're at right now with this? And, and what is the outcome that you would find acceptable? Well, so, uh, Brian, I think it's pretty simple. Russia invaded Ukraine. Ukraine is defending itself. We should help Ukraine defend itself. Um, and the outcome is dependent in part on, on what President Zelensky and Ukrainians believe. Um, I mean, I, I have my views about what I think should be their war goals, um, but that's a decision for them to make. Um, obviously, we hope to see an end to the conflict, but if Russia continues to wage this war of aggression, Ukraine, of course, has to defend itself. And what I, I hope doesn't happen is that the president or European leaders begin to put pressure on President Zelensky and the Ukrainians, begin to say, slow the delivery of munitions to try to force him to sue for peace on undesirable terms. I think it's entirely reasonable for Ukrainians to want Russian troops off of Ukrainian soil. 
Um, and I think that we should continue to back Ukraine in the defense of their own territory. If the West falters or flags or fades in this, uh, it will be an ominous signal to mm -hmm. China that they can go for the jugular in Taiwan, which, again, is the single biggest flashpoint in the world. Look, we looked the other way in 2008. We got uh, Georgia stayed. Then we got 2014 because 2008 we weren't firm enough. In 2022, we have to be smarter and stop this now or else it's going to be incrementally getting tougher and tougher. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton, thanks so much. Always great. Uh, and, he pre and go ahead and check out his website. You'll find out everybody he endorsed who uh, also has a, a military in their background. Senator, thank you. Thank you, Brian. Go get him. Uh, listen, when we come back, I'll take your calls, and then we're going to bring in another veteran, Mike Gallagher. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. I don't have that much time, but I want to bring you to this. Uh, Jonathan Swan did a great job talking via satellite to Zelensky at this Davos big conference overseas, Davos, Switzerland. And he asked uh, Zelensky, what is it like uh, having somebody try to assassinate you? Listen to what he said. Cut 31. It becomes repetitive. You remember that... Uh film um, Groundhog um, Day uh, with uh, Bill Murray and uh, he didn't want it to, to repeat you know he was uh, living through the day on and on again people were um, spending the money <laughs> investing the efforts uh, they tried so I was prepared to help them I uh, wake up in the morning it's still the same I'm quite philosophical about this situation how great is that they try to assassinate me the first time he's shocked, but then it happens every day. And after a while, he stopped being worried about it. Uh, the John this one also asked him if there's a succession plan, should you be killed? A lot of people gasped at that, and they said, you don't have to. And some of his aides said, you don't have to answer that. He goes, no, I'll answer it. And he went ahead and answered it. Why wouldn't he? Because people wondered, especially early, I did, that if Zel you know, Vladimir Putin's hope was Zelensky would quit and be flown out of there like Ghani. And then when he didn't, they said, let's kill him. He'll be this. He's such, he's such a rock star. We'll do what we do with Navalny. We either kill him or capture him. And they couldn't do either. And he got even bigger than life. And when he stood there and stood and went back out after the bombing happened during the day and said, I'm still standing. Here's my parliament. Here I stood. Uh, that inspired everybody. But people wondered, what if he got lucky? What if one of the assassination squads actually killed him? What would happen to the effort? And he had a plan. We come back. Our plan is to interview Congressman Mike Gallagher. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He and Putin have, have had a common narrative about the decline of the West. We're paralyzed, we're polarized, we can't get anything done. The alliance was divided and had lost its purpose and so on. Boom. We totally underestimated the West. We underestimated the United States' willingness to take the lead again. We underestimated the willingness of the Europeans to come together and of the United States to put this coalition together. And we underestimated how fast and how severe the sanctions are that they could place. So 
maybe the West isn't as weak as we thought. Bob Gates' revelations, you know, he's been uh, worked for seven different administrations, uh, a Democratic president, Barack Obama, and a Republican president uh, prior to that when George Bush uh, asked him to take over for Donald Rumsfeld. With me in studio is Congressman Mike Gallagher. Uh, great to see you, Congressman, in person. It's great to be with you. Got the military background from uh, Wisconsin, certainly, a, I would say, a purple state, or you think it's a blue state? Uh, I think, well, this year it's going to be a red state uh, in the midterms, but it tends at the presidential level to go for Democrats. But the first Republican to win uh, since Reagan was Donald Trump in 2016. Right. And he thought he won again. (laughs) I don't know if you heard. (laughs) Absolutely. I heard nothing about that. Right. I I didn't think so. Uh, What do you think about what Bob Gates said? Uh, well, if he, I don't know who he's, he was referring to with he uh, in, in terms of sharing the same narrative as, as President Vladimir Xi Putin. Of oh, China. 100% agree. And I think we underestimate how deep this emerging friendship without limits between the Chinese and the Russians uh, is right now. And if anything, the more friction that Putin encounters in Ukraine, the more dependent he's going to become on Xi Jinping as the junior partner in this relationship. And I think they're both dedicated to undermining, if not destroying the West. They're both paranoid and obsessed with this idea of color revolutions globally, because, of course, all they care about is maintaining power at the expense of their people, and therefore they can brook no dissent. And so I would argue that they have been waging a Cold War against us for the better part of a decade. And we are now only waking up to the fact that we are in such a competition and we need to do a lot more, a lot more aggressively in order to win that competition. See, uh, I read Thomas Friedman on Sunday where he was here. He had lunch with um, he had lunch with President Biden. And he said, I can't talk about the substance, but I will tell you those knuckleheads at Fox, this is his quote, uh, don't know what they're talking about. And they said he can't put two sentences together. Number two, he said uh, they underestimated Joe Biden. He was able to bring NATO together. He was able to bring the West together, the European Union together. Uh, he was able to unify the continent and get the American people and as well as the Republicans, Democrats behind the effort in Ukraine against Russia. Does he deserve credit for that? The Biden administration put their entire national defense strategy, what they're calling integrated deterrence, in a test in Ukraine. And the idea is that you could rely on soft power and specifically in this case, the threat of sanctions combined with relentless diplomacy, Secretary Blinken's phrase, instead of putting hard power in the path of Putin. And that and what, test what happened. The invasion happened. But so, then he said but diplomacy wasn't meant to be a deterrent. That's right. He said sanctions. Never sanctions. That is explicitly the opposite of what they were telling us in the months leading up. So if you're in if your theory of American deterrence rel- relies upon a country being invaded, pillaged, destroyed in order to work then I suggest you need a different theory. Now, I welcome the fact that the Europeans are saying things we've been begging them to say for years, the Germans in particular. But the proof will be in the pudding. We have a long way to go in terms of fortifying NATO's eastern front. I welcome the discussion about Finland and Sweden. and NATO. That's all good. But again, deterrence failed. And Ukrainians, despite their bravery, are paying the cost. So for the administration to brag about it is crazy to he me. He offered him a plane to get out. And you remember Zelensky famously said, you offered me a ride, I want, I want guns, I want arms. And because they thought it was going to be another Ghani situation, and their prediction was 72 hours it would fall. What they've done effectively is rally since. I hope the $30 billion get into theater. I hope. No doubt about it. Uh, Joe Biden knows all these people. It probably played a role. But you can't say that he rallied everyone together. You could say Macron and he did some, uh, some, uh, some uh, uh, laudable diplomacy, tried. Macron was relentless. They looked foolish now because nothing they said worked. Now we're getting arms in there. 
But um, I think Vladimir Putin deserves most of the credit for unifying uh, NATO. Everything we've been trying to tell them that Vladimir Putin was a legitimate threat until they saw it. They didn't believe it, yet it's on their doorstep and in their history books. Well, the other thing the Friedman narrative ignores is, of course, Afghanistan. You can't tell me that Putin wasn't watching Afghanistan thinking, wow, uh, the Biden administration looks completely inept. Afghanistan, whether you were an advocate of staying or going, was a completely inept, massive foreign policy failure that made us look weak. And it weakened our deterrent posture in Eastern Europe, as well as in uh, the Indo-Pacific theater. So – Again, I, 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 I went crazy when there were on anonymous senior Pentagon officials bragging about the success of integrated deterrence in Ukraine because it ignores the inconvenient fact that deterrence failed. And we have a long way to go towards restoring American deterrence, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, I'm almost heartened by the fact that that the American people have not let Joe Biden recover from the Afghanistan evacuation because we have standards. And he embarrassed us to such a degree that it's impossible to shake off. And the thing is, he left billions of dollars worth of equipment there as well. And we have to leave a country and makes us look weak. When if you see the way the Russians are fighting right now, the way you guys fight, you adapted to the battlefield. We got the invasion thing down. Then we had then you guys got urban fighting down. Then you figured out a way to with drone technology and with Hellfire missiles that were pioneered in the middle of two wars. And then you're watching Russia roll out 1980s tanks that they can't even repair quick enough before they get blown up. So you really have an appreciation for American military. But unfortunately, people have the image of the evacuation. And that image, it's it's like the the last helicopter out of Vietnam image. Worse, where it's gonna it's gonna haunt them. And he said it wouldn't happen. Like, exactly. And I would argue we did not get complete candor from even our highest ranking uniformed officials. The fact is, Milley tried to sell this, spin it as a logistical success. I mean, that's like calling um, the Donner Party a logistical success. Okay, half the people made it to California, but the other people died and, and ate each other. I mean, it's just crazy to call that a logistical success. That left a mark. The other weak link in our strategy as I see it right now, again, I welcome the fact that the Europeans seem to be doing more. I, I, I have supported the sanctions on Russia. I support getting, getting off the oil and gas. But that's the issue. If we – Can I just stop you there? Remember Nord Stream 2? He said go ahead and finish it. Exactly. So that's Joe Biden's policy. It was the Germans that finally walked away from it. And what did he do on his first day in office? He launched a war on domestic American energy production. And that is the weak link in our strategy right now. That's actually undermining our ability to truly get tough on Russia and turn Putin into a pariah. It's a gift to Putin. It's a gift to Xi Jinping. The Green New Deal energy policy is totally out of touch with reality. And the fact is the world used more coal last year than at any point in human history. We might launch a war on coal, on hydrocarbons, everything here domestically, but other places that use this stuff less efficiently and less environmentally friendly than we do are still burning it. So we're not actually helping Doesn't the Doesn't China make a coal plant a month exactly. or maybe even more? So this is what you're referring to, and I was just outraged by what President Biden said, and it's what he says by mistake. Uh, it doesn't mean he's not telling the truth. So he's in Tokyo. Right now, we believe he's going to land in Alaska in a half hour, uh, refuel and come back home, cut 16. Here's the situation. When it comes to the gas crisis, uh, we're going through an incredible transition that is taking place that, God willing, when it's over, we'll be stronger and the world will be stronger unless we rely on fossil fuels when this is over. We're going through a transition, really? So he's admitting that that six, seven dollars a gallon gas in California, four fifty on that or four sixty on average in the United States. Kind of working for him. Well, think of how the narrative has changed, right? Originally, it was blame evil domestic American producers. 
Then it was blame Putin, right? The talking points were Putin's price hike. Now it's we're going to say the quiet part out loud. Uh, and Americans just got to suck it up, pay more at the pump because we want everyone to have electric vehicles and we want John Kerry to win a Nobel Peace Prize. By the way, John Kerry's in Davos right now. Why? To, to foster this crazy narrative that we can work with the Chinese on climate change, okay? The Chinese don't care and about Russia. climate change. He still wants to write Russia. And, and we're going to cozy up to Venezuela and all these Latin American countries. And deal and with Iran. Beg them to produce produ- uh, increased production while we're launching a war on our domestic producers. It makes no sense at all. And Americans are paying the price right now. Congressman uh, Mike Algar, our guest. Congressman. Here's the thing. If you had, like I bought uh, in 2008, I went and bought an SUV, a hybrid SUV, a little bit more expensive, one of my favorite cars ever. So when I went to get another after three years, one thing, you had to replace the battery every eight years. And they go, when price battery, I go, what happens after eight years? They go, I assume you got to replace it. We had no idea. They had no idea at, um, at Ford. So I got there. It had to be replaced. And I say, you know what? I love this car. I'm saving a few miles of gas. Not that much, as much as I thought, but I'd like to do this hybrid again. He goes, oh, they stopped making it. No one wanted it. So they stopped making it. As soon as you can make a car that saves me and you money and that family out there money and makes and maybe you have to invest in the infrastructure for charging stations, Americans will do it. But right now you want us off gas without an alternative. A Tesla is not an alternative for most people listening to us right now. Well, again, I'm all for electric vehicles. Uh you know, but the problem is you need electricity. And? So where, where does that come from? And you need batteries, right? And, and if you interrogate the battery supply chains, it re- increases our dependency on China if we're moving to— Absolutely. If, well, and we just gave away the Congo, exactly. uh, which had rare earth, right? That's or right. Taiwan, who also happens to make some of this stuff, has rare earth too. We're going to let that go. So the thing is just play it out. Coal usually fires up electricity. Yeah. How, how are we doing that with nuclear? Oh, we don't want nuclear either. So how are we doing it through solar? That's not consistent enough. You've got to answer these questions before you jam this down the average family's throats. Don't you think it's a massive opportunity for Republicans, not just in 22 but 24, Absolutely. to really lead this energy revolution? Absolutely. And you advanced nuclear microreactor technology. I mean that we have to go in that direction. I mean, if you care about the environment – and you're not talking about nuclear. You're just you're not serious at this point. But the left does not want to talk about that. Right. You know, they're starting to re-entertain um, nuclear again in Europe, in Germany. 100%. They should have shut it down. They saw what happened in Japan after that tidal wave. Uh, and they said, let's get rid of it. Obviously, a bad reaction. Angela Merkel, the most overrated politician in the history of man. And she's a woman. Right. How, how I mean, much, how much did she decide that was wrong? Let's build Nord Stream 1. Let's build Nord Stream 2. Let's get more dependent on Russia and let's forget about nuclear energy. And how, how many uh, magazine covers was she on? Which Ton. is glowing headlines. Can this woman save the West? Absolutely. Right. Now but, they're writing a book about Obama and Merkel. Good luck to both that. I cannot wait to uh, download mine. Just remind me in the break. When we come back more with Congressman Mike Gallagher, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the election. This is a big primary day uh, and where we're heading. Don't move. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Mr. President, is the policy of strategic ambiguity towards Taiwan dead? No. Could you explain? No. Mr. President, would you send troops to um, Taiwan if China invaded? The policy has not changed at all. I stated that when I made my statement yesterday. Mr. President, you said that you would intervene militarily to defend Taiwan, though. 
He didn't answer. He says nothing has changed. And they came out and walked back and said, we will help Taiwan defend itself against China. He says we will intervene militarily against China. Congressman Mike Gallagher here, what's your thought? Well, this is now the third time in nine months that the president has said something like this and the White House has said to walk it back. I think we should end the policy of strategic ambiguity. I think strategic clarity, making it clear to China that we would defend Taiwan, would actually improve our deterrent posture. But honestly, what matters far more than what the rhetorical commitment by the president is, is what we actually do. Are we actually investing in weapon systems that arm Taiwan to the teeth with missiles and mines? And there we have a long way to go. But we know exactly what they need, right? We do. We do. And and what do you know the weapon system? I know General Keene went over with me. It went over my head because I'm not a military <laughs> guy like you. But he said these are the systems ready to go as soon as we put them in. China's not going to be happy, but we're going to do it. Well, the, the one at the top of the list right now is Harpoons, an anti-ship uh, missile, which would have devastating effect. The problem is— Is that manually operated? Because, yeah, it can be. It can, you can, you can or are those fixed—those like, like Patriots that come out of like missiles? Oh, or? no, you, you, can, you can make them far more mobile, oh, a okay. system like that. Um, but uh, the problem is they're not scheduled to arrive for two to three years. That may be too late. We're already within what's called the Davidson window, where former Indo-PACOM commander Phil Davidson said the Chinese could invade within the next five years. So— uh, we are not moving fast enough in terms of replenishing munition stockpiles. We just burned through our stockpiles of javelins, stingers, things like our that. Our own. Exactly. Exactly. So we need to change the way we buy those weapon systems to field long-range fires in Indo-PACOM. We also don't have the basing agreements we need to put small teams of Marines in the southern Japanese islands as well as the northern Philippines islands. So I'm going to uh, – Bob Gates talks too slow to play the sound bite, but what he said <laughs> is very interesting. That President Xi must be asking himself – we also, like the Russians, haven't fought a real war in a long time. You guys have. The U.S., the United States has constantly for the last 20 years, mm-hmm. right? Big and small. Big operations, small invasion. Big invasions, uh, small urban fighting. Uh, then you have special operations taking out different targets like bin Laden. He says they have to be asking themselves, are we going to perform as badly as Russia did? Is our equipment going to let us down like Russia has? Has it not been maintained? Because, you know, drills and opera- and drills and war games – don't add up to actual fighting. And do you think that's legitimate questions going on? Legitimate questions. Um, you know, the last time they fought uh, a war, I think, was with, with Vietnam, and that was a whole generation and ago. And they didn't do well. They did not do well. Yeah, moral of the story is don't get in a fight with the Vietnamese. These, are, these yeah. are, they are tough people. Uh, who, by the way, like us more now. That's, that's, right? They oh, like us more than the Chinese My now. first big trip as a fresh member of Congress, I went to Vietnam, and we happened to be there at the same time John McCain, who's still alive, was there. He gave us a tour of the Hanoi Hilton. He was mobbed everywhere we went. He was like a celebrity there. I mean, the, the, there's so much pro-American sentiment, and we have a shared strategic interest in countering China. I digress. Okay, legitimate questions, but we cannot bet the future of the free world on this idea that Xi Jinping is questioning his lifelong ambition to reunify Taiwan with the mainland by force if necessary because the scale of their military modernization – it's so much bigger than what Russia has done, and they're studying this problem endlessly. And, oh, by the way, if they think the West is rearming, that could expedite their timeline. Better to move now before these key weapon systems are actually fielded before it's too late. You know better, but when you look at their economy and the stresses they have in their economy, they've taken out the free enterprise elements of their economy, and then you see the Belt and Road program that they're spreading across the world looking to spread their influence, at the same time locking down $25 million in in uh, in um, uh, not in uh, Beijing, but in Shanghai. Mm. 
So you have the Beijing's beginning to lock down another 25 million. They have trouble with their ports. They're trouble in manufacturing. How much can they actually afford? I know they don't have to worry about elections, but at what point do they say we can't afford to build another aircraft carrier? But the, so that could work both ways, though, right? Combined with the the chaos that the zero COVID policy, which they're committed to, is is creating, I could see that making them less adventurous abroad, or I could see it making Xi Jinping more adventurous abroad, right? In that he would need to stoke nationalist sentiment uh, in order to increase his hold on power. All, all I know is there is a heck of a lot of propaganda right now uh, that's geared towards unifying this country. And if you read Xi Jinping's speeches, unifying his country and taking Taiwan, exactly. Well, he, and he's he's talking about um, um, you know uh, Mao's legacy and the need to destroy certain institutions in order to rebuild them. He's it seems like he's preparing like his Kong. populace to endure an enormous amount of pain. He's he's lionizing the decision by Mao to intervene. In Korea, uh, the most the highest grossing Chinese movie of all time now is the battle at Lake Changin, which tells the story of Chosen Reservoir as a victory for the Chinese against the evil Americans. So they're clearly getting drunk on their own Kool-Aid right now. That's what worries me. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they actually want to think about South Korea instead of making South Korea an ally. They're thinking about taking it. Exactly, exactly. And making it like North Korea. Exactly. Well, that's so attractive. Yeah. Who, by the way, is being buried right now by the COVID-19. Uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher, always great to talk to you. Uh, good luck, and you're going to be babysitting the rest of the week. That's right. right that's right. I'm a, I'm a glorified babysitter. All right, fantastic. Don't get hurt in New York. That's right. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.